the promise of blessing on it. If it doesn't, you got the wrong one. This is our second sermon in the series on the book of Revelation. This is proving to be a fascinating book. I don't know about you, but I'm finding myself just sort of amazed and just kind of reading and like forget I'm supposed to actually be writing a sermon. Um, so it's like, oh no, I got to go back and write something down. Turn with us, turn with me to the, the book of Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read the first three verses. Listen carefully as Different as this book is, it is part of the inspired, inerrant Word of God, and we need to listen to it carefully. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again this week we dare to make our way through Revelation. So will you please help us? We know there's still a lot that we need to learn from your word so that it can have full impact in our lives. We know we're susceptible to our idols, to our sin, to our own selfishness, to our fears. So Lord, open our eyes and open our ears to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. We want to be among those who are blessed for having spent time in this wonderful book. Help us to meet you in this book. Help us to see your Son in its words. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. If it ever became illegal uh, in our country, as it is in many countries today, to own a complete copy of the Bible. I mean, even if the authorities allowed uh, me to own just one book of the Bible for personal use, I think I would keep the last book. I think I would keep the book of Revelation. Why? Because I've come to believe that no other book of the Bible presents the gospel as powerfully as this book does. And furthermore, no other book of the Bible, uh, in the face of all that threatens to undo us, proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ in quite the same way that this book does. And if you think about it, that's quite a statement coming from a preacher who spent more time in the Gospel of John than any other book. And yet I'm convinced that no other book of the Bible presents Jesus as clearly and as compellingly as we see him here in this last book. This book lets us see Jesus as he is right now. No other book helps us see Jesus relative to the movement of history 
the way this book does. No other book helps us see Jesus relative to uh, the powers and the authorities and the dominions that are at work in our time the way this book does. No other book helps us see Jesus in a way that overcomes our fears and builds our faith like this book does. So with all that said, let's try to make a few things clear. First, the book of Revelation is not a crystal ball revealing esoteric secrets that enable you to escape the harsh realities of life on earth. But rather, it's a down-to-earth manual on how to be a disciple of Jesus when facing those harsh realities of life here on earth. And in particular, how to do this the way that Jesus did and the way that Jesus does. We learn how to face the harsh realities of life while waiting for the final inbreaking of the kingdom of God, living in this world and hoping for the next world. We learn how to face the harsh realities of life at those points where the kingdom of God rubs up against the kingdoms of this world, creating friction and tension all around us. I know none of you probably have any friction or tension in your life, uh, but I do, so deal with it. Oh, you've got some. We learn how to face the harsh realities of life, knowing that the one is coming on a white horse, the risen Lord Jesus, who, as Revelation 19 makes clear, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This sword is very sharp, like a surgeon's scalpel, and it has the same intent of deep healing and freedom. Second thing uh, that I want to make clear about the book of Revelation is I want to honor the Apostle John's primary motivation for writing this, which is actually the longest letter in the Bible. It's not the longest book of the Bible, but it's the longest letter. And yes, John is a prophet, and yes, John is a seer of apocalyptic visions. But first and foremost, John is a pastor. And he's a pastor who wants to help the people he loves follow Jesus as those who overcome. And so do I. I want to serve you as your pastor, doing what I can to help you live above and beyond your circumstances, above and beyond those ever-present harsh realities of life. Now, I'm not claiming to have the last word on the last book of the Bible. Only John can claim that. But I want you to know, as we go through this book, there's a couple of guiding principles as we read the text. There's a couple of guiding principles that I have as I prepare this text. And the first one is, I believe what John believes. And the second one is, I'm not always sure what John believes. (laughs) Dr. J. Ramsey Michaels in his commentary on Revelation says it so well. He says, the purpose of preaching from the Revelation is to evoke first wonder and then faithfulness to the slain lamb, talking about Jesus. Not to explain the book away or to reduce it to a blueprint of the future. The preacher's task is to stand out of the way And let the book's images do their work. So hopefully I will get out of the way of the book 
So the book speaks to you directly. And I think more than any other series that I've ever preached, it will be important for you to read the text in advance, probably several times. And as you read uh, the text first, there's two questions that you need to ask of the text. And first is, uh, what jumps out at me here? What leaps out? What's the first thing that you notice when you see it? And the second question is, what puzzles me here? What comes out that I don't get, that I don't understand, that just seems a, a mystery? And so keep those questions in mind, and as we go through this book, we'll try to answer those questions. Now, last week I told you that Revelation is something of an alternate reality. To John's contemporaries and to us, the world you see appears to be one thing. In fact, it's something quite different from what it appears to be, but only faith can see that. And you cannot, you must not allow the visual to overwhelm the invisible. John is telling you, you can't live the Christian life that way. There is one reality, one truth, and that is the reality of the truth as it is in heaven. And John is bringing that reality down to us as he was given to see it, and in a form that's dramatic enough to arrest our attention and penetrate our conscience. John is convinced as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ that there's more to reality than meets the eye. John, I think, would say something like the following. He would say, look around you. Take in all that you can take in with your eyes. And then listen around you. And take in all that you can take in with your ears. And smell and taste and touch Take in all that you can take in with all of your senses. And then realize, as I did on the prison island of Patmos, that there's more to what we call life than we can know with our senses and with our intellect and with our emotions. There's more. And it's the purpose of Revelation, this down-to-earth, this worldly pastoral purpose is to open all that up more. Is to open up the more of life. To open up what goes beyond our senses. To teach us that there's more to this moment than we can know. And to see Jesus as we have never seen him before. And so in our study of Revelation, by keeping our focus on God's revelation of Jesus then our primary concern, our primary uh, focus in understanding this book will be on the present work of Jesus right now for his people and the hope and the grace and the strength that this revelation brings to us today in the midst of all of our struggles in a difficult world. So let's dive in and turn to our text, uh, Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 1 with the revelation of Christ. That should be the first blank there, the revelation of Christ. That verse says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, since we spent all of last week looking at this verse in great detail, I'm not going to spend much time on it this morning. But it's a really important verse. 
And so if you missed last week's sermon, uh, please go to our website and download it because it sets the tone for the whole book. I was reading this week, uh, preparing for this, and read uh, Mark Driscoll, uh, pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. I really enjoy Mark Driscoll. I can't use most of his stuff because it's just, he's way out there. Um, But I love listening to him. Um, But he's the pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And in his book, Vintage Jesus, he writes uh, about this verse. And he says, The book of Revelation is therefore an incredibly important book because it's a book about Jesus, no less than the four Gospels, and the primary book that reveals to us that picture of Jesus in heaven today as opposed to on the earth yesterday. Sadly, you'll get a sense of his style. Sadly, the book of Revelation has become the fishing pond for Christian wingnuts with an affinity for goofy charts to string together endless debates about what the mark of the beast is and who the Antichrist is and whether or not locusts are really code words for Black Hawk helicopters. (laughs) Such people need both new hobbies and the right meds. (laughs) Revelation is a book about Jesus and emphatically declares that in this opening verse, the opening line of the book describes the entire book as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that verse continues by telling us that God has made the revelation, He has given the revelation of Jesus Christ. He has made it known to the servant of Christ. The servant of Christ. The end of verse 1 and verse 2. It says, He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Now this is the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, Matthew 4, the brother of the Apostle James, Mark 1, Jesus' first cousin through his mother Salome, who was Mary's sister. We see that in Mark 15 and 16. He's a fisherman. We see that in all the Gospels. Uh, He's one of the inner circle of three with Peter and James, Luke 9. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved, John 13. He is the bishop of Ephesus, and now he's a prisoner on the island of Patmos, which we'll see in our chapter in verse 9. And in 90 to 96 AD, John, by then the last living apostle. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you know we've preached all of John. So he started... A couple years ago, or more, with the Gospel of John, we spent a few weeks there, like about 60. And then we did 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And all of John was written after everything else. So when all the Bible was done, they went to the last living apostle. Said, John, you need to put this down into writing. Everybody else is gone. You're the last one. So he wrote his three letters, and then he wrote his gospel, and now he's on this island, and he's going to give us revelation. And by this time, he's ministering to the second generation of Christians in the city of Ephesus, not the first generation, not the people that knew Jesus. This is now the second generation of Christians, and John's like the last one of the first generation. But at the same time, The Romans elected their ninth Caesar, Domitian. He gave him the title. The Romans gave 
this Caesar, Domitian, the title, our Lord and God. And he was a cruel, vicious man who continued uh, the persecution of the Christian churches that had begun under Nero back in the 60s. Nero was another cruel, vicious man. And the stories of their persecutions uh, will just make you weep. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you should get a copy. And it's hard to get past the first chapter in one sitting. But John and many other disciples refused to bow their hearts to Caesar. And so many, many, many Christians were killed. And many, many more Christians were placed in prison. And so the Romans took John aboard a ship in chains and sailed some 50 miles um, from Ephesus to a small island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And this island um, is only about eight miles long and four miles wide. And uh, I haven't been there, but I know now that Ron has, so he can correct me if I mess up any of the details. But it was turned into a penal colony. They took the whole island and made it a prison. And uh, they poorly fed and poorly clothed the prisoners there, and they were forced to work in rock quarries. But this imprisonment did not stop our risen Lord from communicating with his beloved apostle. And the enormity of the visions that John received on that barren island staggered him. And if you remember, throughout his Gospels, John never directly refers to himself. He was almost always in the third person. He never says, I am John. He says, uh, the disciple that Jesus loved. And yet here he bookends his visions with the statement, I, John. It's found in chapter 1 and in chapter 22. It's an exclamation that expresses his amazement that he's receiving such overwhelming visions. Now if you remember from uh, John and the letters of John, he uh, over and over again, faithfully testified to the first coming of Jesus Christ in everything that he wrote. We see in John 19, he writes, He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. And then in John 21, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And then in 1 John chapter 1, Life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then in 1 John 4, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Over and over again, uh, the Apostle John testifies to Jesus. That he came, he is the Christ, he is the Lord, he is the Savior. And now again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John faithfully testifies to all that he saw concerning Jesus' second coming. Specifically, he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, is what it says in that verse. Those phrases appear together again a little farther on in verse 9. He says, I, John, 
your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So not only is he the one who uh, witnesses to the word of God and gives testimony of Jesus Christ, he says, that's why he's in prison. That's why he's on the island, because I was doing that stuff. I was giving witness to the word of God and testimony to Jesus Christ, and I got me a one-way ticket to Patmos. The word of God expressed in the book of Revelation is the testimony about the coming glory of Jesus Christ given to the church and recorded by this faithful witness, John. And as God the Father knew who John was, and he knew where John was, he knew the difficult circumstances that John was living in, and so he's aware of who we are. He's aware of where we are, and he's aware of any difficult circumstances that many of us are facing at this very moment. We're now living in a spiritually a dark and immoral world system with enemies who hate Jesus on every hand. And yet our living Lord says he wants to bless us with comfort and courage when we're willing to hear and take to heart the words of this prophecy. And that blessing we get in verse 3, which is the promise of Christ. The promise of Christ, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Sort of three points that we get out of this verse. And the first one, one of the first things we see here in Revelation, as John says in this verse, is that it's a prophecy. This is especially emphasized in the book by being said at the very beginning and at the very end. There's actually four things that appear in chapter 1 and in chapter 22. And that's, uh, we learned to call that, a, it's a literary device called an inclusio, which means it's a statement at the beginning and at the end that tells us something about everything in the middle. And so one of the things he's telling us is everything in the middle is a prophecy. He's also telling us that there's blessing, and he's telling us that John is the one who is giving this to us, which is sort of to authenticate it. At the end of Revelation, again, we see this book referred to as a prophecy. Revelation 22, verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then verses 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. And by prophecy is meant certainly the disclosure of the future, as verse 1 has already indicated, and as we will read again at the end in Revelation 22, verse 6. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So he uses the same phrase at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. But prophecy, as we know, is not only the prediction of the future, but it's also the authoritative 
proclamation of the meaning of the present. And it's the authoritative proclamation of the obligations of God's people in the present. In short, most of the time, prophecy is simply preaching. And the prophets of the Old Testament were preachers even more than they were predictors of the future. And the Apostle John himself stands as a successor to the Old Testament prophets who are always addressing the immediate situation of their contemporaries as well as speaking of things to come. Indeed, the, the message of the Old Testament prophets actually saturates the book of Revelation. We see that over and over again. It says in uh, Revelation chapter 10, But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So that's the first thing we need to know, is the prophecy is about this book, but it's both contemporary, present, and future. It's not an either-or situation. Second thing we see this verse, remember this verse starts with the word blessed, or blessed. It's correct either way. And the Greek word for blessed is makarios, and it means happy. But since John was Jewish, he may have also been thinking of the Hebrew word for blessed, which is ashar, which is used at the beginning of Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. At our Presbytery retreat last week, our speaker preached from these verses, Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. And he gave two messages on these verses. One of them, uh, I think the whole message was on the word blessed. What does it mean? And it's a good thing, and you should want it. That's the short version. But one of the things that he said is the one who's blessed is the one who takes and who finds the right path in light of the wrong path. And how blessed then is the one who not only hears but takes to heart what is written in this prophecy because it is always the right path in the face of many wrong paths. This word is from the heart and mind of God. An obedience to this truth results in personal blessing for in this prophecy are the secrets of how to live for Jesus in the difficult days to come. And so the Apostle John pronounces this blessing upon all those who read the words of this prophecy. For these words are the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And this blessing extends to those who hear these words and who take them to heart because the time is near. Since Revelation is a circular letter, it's intended to be read aloud and and all seven of the churches that it was addressed to. So, you know, they would read it in this church A, and then the next Sunday they take it to church B, and, and it would get read in all the churches. And uh, so here, you know, it says, uh, blessed are those who hear. And John may mean hear in that ordinary sense of uh, hearing a letter as it's read aloud. But given the stress upon taking what is heard uh, to heart, I think hearing is probably used... Um, 
in the sense of hearing not merely as listening uh, to the words, but truly hearing and believing and taking comfort in the testimony of Jesus Christ which is being revealed. If we believe what we hear and we take it to heart, then there's great blessing in this book for Christ's church. And this is the first of seven blessings in this book, seven Beatitudes. Seven is a really big number in Revelation. In fact, we're going to break this whole book down at some point because it's a series of seven sevens. Numbers in Revelation are never uh, coincidental. They're never accidental. They're symbols that point to something else. And throughout the Scripture, seven is a number of completeness or perfection. And the seven blessings in Revelation are connected to believing and hearing in chapter 1, to being faithful under de- unto death in chapter 14, to being ready for the Lord's coming in chapter 16, to receiving rest from our labors in um, chapter 14, by responding to the invitation um, to the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19, to participating in the first resurrection in chapter 20, to finally being granted the right to eat from the tree of life and enter the new Jerusalem in chapter 22. And therefore, anyone who hears these words of this prophecy and responds in faith to all seven of these promised blessings of God will have the reward of eternal life and victory over death and rest from our labors and will dwell in the city of God. In other words, they will receive their sevenfold inheritance that is ours in Christ, completeness, and obtain every blessing that God has for his people, perfection. So that's the second point. There's a promise of blessing. It is a prophecy, but it applies to both the present and the future. And if you hear it and believe it and keep it, there is a promise of blessing. This is the only book in the Bible that opens with a promise of blessing that says if you read it and hear it and keep it, you will be a blessed person. You'll have a blessed life. Why don't we read this more often? Don't you want a blessed life? There's one book that says, read it here, keep it, you'll be blessed. We say, oh, that one's too hard for me. You know, I, I don't actually need any blessing in my life. You know, I'm doing pretty well, thank you very much. That's idiotic. We have a promise of God for blessing. We should be spending more time in this book, not less. And then the last thing that we get uh, out of this verse is there's a sense of urgency to the book of Revelation because verse 3 ends with this phrase, for the time is near. It doesn't mean that the predicted events of this final book are to take place within the span of John's lifetime and that of his readers? Perhaps, if so, it will radically alter uh, and affect the way we look at this book, the way we understand it, and some people interpret Revelation just that way, assigning much of its contents to a description of the downfall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman Empire uh, in the time of Nero in 70 AD, just after Nero. Uh, This means, of course, that the book would have to be written before that date. Others observe that near is a relative term. It could mean that when the time comes, the predicted events will take place in a relatively brief time span. It allows for a later dating of the book, the more traditional fulfillment of the persecutions in the reign of the emperor Domitian around 
96 AD. And one of the strongest evidences for that view is that's the view that's attested by one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, who lived from approximately 130 AD to 200 AD. And so we always trust people who are closer to the event than we are, as a general rule. Um, but now it's sufficient to note that either way, there is a sense of urgency. The time for the fulfillment of these things has arrived. A decisive moment in time has been reached. And that reiterates the truth taught in verse 1, that the events depicted in the book of Revelation will come soon, must soon take place. They're imminent. But there's a little trick in this phrase, for the time is near, because the word time doesn't translate chronos, which refers to time on a clock or on a calendar. We get the word chronology uh, from it. But rather the word kairos, which refers to seasons or epochs or eras. And what he's saying is the next great era in God's redemptive history is near. The return of Christ is imminent. The next great event on God's prophetic calendar, that's always been the church's hope. Jesus commanded his followers to watch expectantly for his return. Luke 12, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 13, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Hebrews, Hebrews 10, the writer of the Hebrews says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not the, neglecting to meet together as the, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. James encouraged struggling believers with the reality that Christ's return is imminent, James 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Despite the skepticism of the scoffers, the Lord Jesus Christ will return, and his return is near. And you say, but it's 2009. It's been a long time. You know, what's the deal? And we always have to be very careful to remember that God is not bound by space and time like we are. And you don't want to bring God down to our level and think he has to live under our rules. You remember in the Old Testament it says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord? Yeah, he's saying, I'm not operating according to your day timer. In fact, you could show him all the plans in your day timer. He'd probably laugh because he knows what's really going to happen. Behind this phrase, for the time is near, I think lies the idea that there is a sovereign hand in charge of the future, that history is really his story, that what happens to God's servants is not chance but decree, that God orders and fulfills his plan for his people even in the face of terrible and terrifying events. And no matter how bad it seems or how bad it gets, God never abandons his sovereign rule. You know, my sons uh, sometimes uh, affectionately are known in our house as crash and smash. 
and they're forever running into something, falling off of something, or breaking something. And we regularly dash them off uh, to the hospital. So much so, I find myself taking them to different emergency rooms so we don't get too well known at any one hospital. You know, you walk in, it's like, oh, we got your room right over here. Now, I never fail to grasp the urgency of the situation when something painful happens to them. No one has to tell me I should rush them to the doctor. I get that. Massive amounts of blood lead to urgency. <laughs> but there's other things I need to be reminded of. For instance, conversations uh, that we ought to have that I keep putting off or sharing things that burden my heart or just listening to them, which I never quite seem to have enough time or energy to do as much as I ought to do. And yet I believe those things are just as important as their physical well-being, yet because those things don't seem quite so urgent, it's easy for me to put them off. Maybe you find yourself doing that. And one reason I mention this is to urge uh, those of you who are parents to remember to make these things a priority in life. But I also hope that it illustrates what John is saying here about the place the Lord Jesus occupies in our life. Because we frequently don't treat as urgent what the scriptures say is urgent. We don't see lots of blood, we'll get around to it. But the Bible says, this is urgent. And one of the reasons we're going to get all those wild symbols and images and pictures is so we see lots of blood and get the message that this is urgent. Because obviously you're not getting it by me just telling you. So I'm going to show you. And your first reaction is going to be, Where's the hospital? And we're going to get to those. These issues cannot wait. Our involvement with the things of Christ, our willingness to say what needs to be said, to obey what ought to be obeyed, to serve where we ought to serve, and to use our gifts, cannot wait until we retire or to when things are more convenient. If we put them off, we will wake up one day and feel the awful loss of missed opportunities. The Lord's going to honor himself anyway, and somebody else will have the joy of it, but we'll miss out. We cannot help but sense the urgency that John brings to bear in this book. And that urgency becomes even more clear when we look at the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue. What is the issue being addressed here? It's simply this, whom will you worship? Someone once said that people are incurably religious, meaning we can't help but worship someone or something. So who will it be? The power of the present age or Jesus Christ? To whom will we give our allegiance? In the imagery of this book, to the beast with his seductive offer of pleasure and wealth or to the slaughtered lamb with his offer of life? Who will we follow? Will we follow Babylon the harlot or will we follow New Jerusalem the brides? What will shape my life? The kingdom of God and Jesus Christ are humanity and rebellion against God. It turns out that all the seven churches of Asia Minor to whom Revelation is first addressed are facing various degrees of persecution. The greatest danger is not persecution. It's spiritual complacency. 
And the last book of the Bible calls us to an all-out loyalty to the Lord in a world that's feverishly worshiping the beast. His excellent book on Revelation, Eugene Peterson, suggests, you know, we're not taught anything that we haven't already learned in the Bible. We're not discovering any new truth. We're simply being taught what the already revealed truth in a new way. He says, I don't read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I read it all before in Law and Prophet and Gospel and Epistle. Everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the Gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. No new truth, but truth conveyed in a new way in a way that penetrates deep and sticks inside. And I think we'll discover that we will receive more help in facing the harsh realities of life on earth from the book of Revelation than from any other book of the Bible. Not only that, we're going to receive more guidance on how to live the Christian life from this book, and we're going to receive more guidance on how to be the church from this book. And we'll discover this is an everyday book for everyday life. And as we hear John's words in the book of Revelation throughout this series... Let's continue to respond to the Savior who's revealed to us by taking every word to heart. For God promises great blessing if we do that. In this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we have the sure and certain testimony of the one who gave himself for us and who conquered death and sin and the grave that we can live victoriously regardless of our circumstances. And that same Jesus, whose testimony is given in this vision, will indeed bless all those who hear these words and who take them to heart. So do that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.